Welcome to Boiling Point. Rats, pigeons, cockroaches and starlings, to only name a few. What do they have in common? Well, they're highly successful and invasive wherever they go. But what is their secret? How do they do it? Our guest did her PhD on exactly those questions. She has been studying the genetics of the successful invaders and although a lot is still in the dark, she found a few answers. And one of the surprise helpers she had were samples, samples, star, uh, starling samples actually, that had been sitting in the basements of museums for decades. Listen in to the starling secrets in just a second. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. Our guest tonight is PhD candidate Kat Stewart from UNSW Sydney and Kat studies the genetics of starlings. Welcome to the show, Kat. Thank you for having me. Oh, and I forgot. I'm Kat and we also have Anastasia. Hello. <laughs> so why starlings, Kat? Um, well, wait, may I go back a little bit further? Why invasive species, Kat? Um, because invasive species are cool. And if you're not studying invasive species, then you need to get on the invasive species train because invasive species are number one everywhere. So it sort of answers the same question as to why starlings. Um, somebody once told me that if you want to do a PhD, uh, it's a bit dangerous to do it in invasive, uh, sorry, in um, like rare species because mm. you might come out the other side with not very many sample points at all. Um, but luckily... That's uh, part of the fun cat. Yeah, I know, sorry. <laughs> uh, but one of the characteristics of invasive species is that they're probably everywhere, at least in specific locations. Uh, and so you won't have any issue at all trying to find individuals to sample, study, look at, test things on. Uh, and so so you've got a lot of data points that you can use to answer interesting questions. Mm -hmm. That's pretty fair. So can you tell us what's the distribution of starlings in Australia? Yeah, so starlings, um, the ones that we have over here are European starlings or common starlings. And they were native in the Palearctic, which is basically Europe plus a little bit of a Asia, North Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the areas of Australia that they've been able to successfully colonize is uh, more or less up and down the, the east coast. Uh, and then throughout the south coast as well. Um, so they stick to the coastal areas uh, because, number one, they can't deal with arid conditions too much. And number two, they actually do really, really well when coexisting with humans. They're very smart birds. They make use of urban structures to build their nests. And so um, basically wherever people are, either in the agricultural setting or in the more high-density urban settings, they will probably be able to exist to some capacity. Hmm. How did they get all the way here to Australia? And ah. when? <laughs> well, the question is, who do we blame? Um, yeah, who do so, we blame? Uh, European people um, <laughs> back in uh, the 1800s um, decided that the... Can I, sorry, can I add probably the English? Let's be specific. Okay, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I didn't and want to point no too No longer European, might I <laughs> Some very specific subgroups of English people, actually. Uh, From the get... continent, we'll give them that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, across a lot of their different uh, colonies, they, they looked around and they thought all the animals looked a little bit too exotic um, and didn't remind them of home nearly enough. And so there were these... I mean, to be fair, when they heard the cockatoos, I can understand that that was not the nicest <laughs> sound yeah. you can wake up to. So, hey, yeah, fair. I'll take a cockatoo over a possum screech any day of the week. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, see, it only gets worse, so that's a thing. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so there are these things called acclimatization societies, uh, which, if you can infer from the name, <laughs> was literally being like, oh, this place that's not England, how can we make it slightly more English? Um, which did involve bringing over a whole bunch of... Um, you know, native European animals and introducing them just for the purpose of, I guess, making the English 
colony people a little bit more comfortable in their new environment. What other animals were included in that? Oh, so we've got lots and lots of different ones. Uh, a vast majority of invasive species in Australia, um, at least the the European ones, were deliberate introductions. So things mm. like deer, there were, I think, 13 deer species introduced to Australia. Well, at least they thought of biodiversity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good on true. them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, not just one species of deer. That would be boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They um you know they need lots of different things to shoot at uh, oh to provide goodness. you know a lot of fun, um lots of other bird species lots of the um invasive invasive European birds uh, were not you know um accidentally flew over here on, during a very you know intense storm they were brought over very deliberately because they wanted some more European like birds over here. Right. So then, why starlings? Now we we got there. <laughs> um, to that so point. starlings specifically are a, a really interesting uh, species in that uh, because of their interest, um, the acclimatization societies really like them because you know they sound really quite nice in my opinion. They're actually really good mimics, uh, and they look quite pretty. pretty. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> and they're a very iconic European bird, and so mm. um, they were introduced onto literally every continent um, except for Antarctica. Obviously, they're probably wouldn't do quite well there. <laughs> they might have been introduced, but they died away. Yeah, like, right yeah. Away. <laughs> they did not have a good time. They didn't pack <laughs> enough jackets. Um, and so we have, uh, you know, multiple continents of independent introductions. Somebody mm. grabbed some birds and brought them over to New York and released them in Central Park back in 1890. And now we have uh, starlings covering the entire continent of North, of North America. And so we have all these independent introductions, which are a little bit tragic in the sense that now we're having to deal with the ramifications of these poor ecological de decisions we have to you know deal with these invasive species now mm. but what they are um, on the positive side of things is a little natural experiment or maybe not so natural experiment and so we can compare uh, patterns in genetics patterns in morphology patterns in how they interact with different ecologically important species mm -hmm. across different continents and ask questions like what's the same across uh, continents, what's different? And this uh, allows us to, you know, answer questions about what makes an invasive species so successful? Why do some invasive species, you know, uh, take off? And why do other introduced species end up, you know, dying out or not being nearly as successful? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a bit like, to, to sum this up, is it, it's a bit like seeing evolution in the making? Is it that really what is, it is, yeah. And it's evolution on fast forward too, because if you think about evolution, it's organisms changing in response to the environment over time. Mm -hmm. But most environmental change, well, maybe not these days, but historically environmental change has been usually quite slow. Mm -hmm. But invasive species, they're, they're pulled from an environment where they're completely adapted and they're brought to a completely new environment with completely new conditions, new abiotic conditions, you know, rainfall and temperatures and new biotic conditions, new animals they're interacting with and new microbes and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they respond very quickly to that. Uh, and so we can study this, what's termed rapid evolution or rap rapid adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, and we're basically looking at evolution on fast forward and can ask questions about how does evolution work, but see it in real time as we study these invasive species. It's incredible. That is, yeah, definitely a good chance for that. Um, mm -hmm. So what, um, yeah, what did you do to find out about their secrets? Um, so I had, uh, <laughs> even though I came from an ecology background and my previous research before this uh, found me in the field in gumboots 99% um, of the time, I spent a vast majority of my PhD um, behind a computer doing um, 
computational biology, Mm -hmm. uh, which is if you want to do genetics these days, uh, genetics used to maybe be a little bit more wet lab heavy, used to be, you know, using pipettes and, you know, running uh, different types of experiments in the wet lab where you could visually see the results of which animals had the same genetics and which animals didn't have the same genetics Mm -hmm. in front of your eyes. But nowadays we're dealing with what's called next generation sequencing. And what we're dealing with is really, really high um, throughput or really large amounts of data, which you can't possibly visualize before your eyes. You have to do it all on the computer. The computer does a lot of the work for you. Hmm. And you're looking at, you know, some type of summary output. Um, And so (laughs) all of the beautiful genetics just gets condensed to black and white numbers and letters before your eyes. Um, And yeah, that's what a a vast majority of my thesis was. Um, In between these (laughs) numbers and letters, um, we're pulling out specific questions, depending on which type of animals I'd chosen to sequence or or get the genetic information for Mm -hmm. a particular project. Were you prepared for that, for the black and white numbers? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I I, I knew it was coming um, and I knew it was going to be tough. but it was also uh, one of those things where you you know that the only way you're going to get to the answer is by just getting through the problems and figuring it out. And you didn't have sorry, um, you didn't have any experience in genetics and bioinformatics when you no, started your PhD. No, absolutely right? not. No, I came into it from with a, a real strong desire to learn more about evolution, and I realized that one of the best ways to do it would be to tackle this thing, genomics or computational mm-hmm. biology, um, and to ask questions about you know the genetics of an animal. Um, so when you ask questions about the genetics of an animal, you're not necessarily interested in its entire kind of DNA. So like, I'm just, I guess, because I'm not a genetics person at all. Um, and I'm sure some of most of our listeners kind of, you know, don't necessarily work in a wet lab or, or directly with genetics. So when you say you work on the genetics or the sequence of it, like, what is it that you're sequencing? Are you sequencing specific parts and seeing how many other individuals have those same parts? Like, what is it that you're really doing? So there's there's lots of different ways to start tackling that. Uh, and it depends on a whole bunch of different things. Number one, what types of animals do you have or samples do you have available to you? Mm-hmm. Um, number two, what's your budget? Your budget will largely right. determine what type of um, sequencing technology you can use to do your samples. And depending on the type of sequencing technology you use, you're going to be going down vastly different avenues. Um, but uh, maybe the best way to uh, articulate this would be like an example of one of the main types of genetic sequencing, which is um, going into the DNA of an organism. Um, and uh, you're right, sometimes we sequence the entire um, organism's what's it called genome the collection of all the dna within that organism Mm -hmm. Um, that's generally quite expensive and while it's uh, frequently used in human genetics um, non-model species i.e you know just most of the rest of the species in the world that aren't you know uh, humans basically and a couple other select ones um, what we have to do is more cost-effective measures of sequencing um, there's a term called reduced representation sequencing which basically just means we're going to sequence the DNA but we can't afford to sequence all of the DNA so we're going to uh, essentially randomly subsample and and grab random sections of the DNA we're going to go in randomly here and figure out what the genetics is over here and we'll go in over here in a different spot in the genome figure out what the genetics is here and exactly like you said you compare it across all the different individuals that you have in your data set work Mm -hmm. out what's the same what's different and you overlap that with other analysis to 
answer really broad questions about how species evolve. Oh, was there a lot of work already done when you started your PhD, like on starlings? Did you have a bit of an idea, like which areas to which sections of the genome to look at? Or was that on you to figure out? It was um, definitely on me to figure out. Um, there is prior, um, like, a work that was sort of looking at which, um, across the entire Australian population of starlings, um, what is the overall structure within that population. So what this means is um, if you grab a starling from New South Wales, Sydney, is it the same or different in terms of its genetics to a starling from, you know, Melbourne, Victoria or something mm. like that? Uh, and that's at the bedrock of a lot of genetic analysis. You have to understand how things are different across the landscape or across the population's um, expanse um, before then you sort of go down into more technical questions about, well, is there a particular genetic site that seems to be um, underneath selection? And so oh. there's a whole bunch of mathematical models that go behind a bunch of different approaches. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, if, if it looks like there's a particular site in the DNA that is um, having a very, very strong signal that maybe it uh, doesn't look like the rest of the patterns, mm -hmm. that's a pretty good indicator that something interesting is happening at that particular spot in the DNA, and we should dig into it further. Do you then extrapolate it and see what's happened with the environment to change them as well? Yeah, absolutely. So you can do lots of different types of analyses. You can look at how um, uh, fluctuations across the landscape in terms of the environmental conditions, maybe a climate variable, for instance, like temperature, mm -hmm. how that correlates with um, uh, the whole spectrum of genetic information that you have across of it. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a very interesting uh, time in uh, non-model organism genomics, which is, I guess, where I am, um, because we are existing in a time where, you know, 20 years ago, sequencing one entire genome of a human cost about one billion dollars. Whoa! Which obviously, one billion dollars per sample is not very economical. <laughs> you didn't um, have that kind of money? I'm no, very disappointed. funny enough, no. Um, <laughs> you don't go into science to make money, or at least not into uh, evolutionary no, of biology. Of course, no, you, you're not, no, you just go into science to spend money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and you spend a lot of money in genetics. It's, um, <laughs> even though the costs have fallen dramatically now, and we can sequence a human genome for just one thousand dollars. So oh, that's, that's still many, not super cheap, that's right? That's still yeah. Expensive, yes. And so I had one data set where I sequenced the whole genomes of all of my birds. Mm -hmm. uh, and that data set involved maybe 50 individuals and cost about $50,000 to <gasps> do. Uh, and so it, genetic uh, uh, studies are, are generally quite expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we do prosper from the fact that there's a lot of advancements over in the medical side of things. There's lots of research and development that are developing, number one, the, the wet lab technologies, the actual how we sequence the DNA bases themselves. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, there are really big leaps and bounds in the computational side of things. You wouldn't think so, but actually things like drastic increases in um, the hardware of computers and uh, software itself becoming more and more smart and being able to deal with really complex models basically has, doing your job well <laughs> it's 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 taking away the the bits of your job which would have been repetitive and really time consuming and opening up a whole new world of possibilities to ask very intricate and complex questions about what causes an organism to start evolving in response to what type of environmental conditions and things like that so i have a question about i'm um, talking about genetics so we have learned these days so back back i don't know 20 years ago we all thought it's all about the genes you have in your genome but now of course we know it's not just about the genes 
themselves. It's about if they're active and if they're being used or not, right? Yes. That makes all the difference. So is this something you could find out with your sequencing on the starlings as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple of different ways you could tackle that. Um, and one of them is actually what I'm going to go do uh, my postdoc over at the University of Auckland on. Um, so at the very end of my thesis, one of the last things I was looking at were a particular type of genetic variants called structural variants. And so what this are, is, instead of, you know, traditionally when people talk about DNA mutation, mm-hmm. they'd tell you at school that there's like, oh, you know, a random base change. So, um, you know, the DNA bases are A, T, C, and G. And It's not actually random? Um, well, <laughs> actually, number one, yes, it is oh, not okay. random. Oof, but I thought everything changed that I ever learned. Okay, go on. <laughs> you, can, you can have single base pair changes, but you can also have entire chunks of the genome that change. Um, between, you know, one individual and its offspring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the scale, and and think about some of these um, structural variants, some of these really big genetic changes between individuals are what give rise to uh, diseases within human populations. So think about Down syndrome. We've got individuals that have an entire extra chromosome. How Mm -hmm. does that happen? So we can have lots of different changes to our chromosome, even within one generation, um, which is... uh, uh, some of these things, um, some of these things that are studying a subgroup of structural variants uh, are what's called transposable elements or jumping genes. Uh, and what these are are special sections of the DNA that uh, basically interact with the environment really, really readily to change how different bits of the DNA are expressed. So they can hmm. switch a gene on, they can switch a gene off. And these are things that people are only now really understanding how common they are and how important they are in controlling how the baseline DNA ends up affecting the overall appearance and uh, personality and physiology of the organism they occur in. Mm -hmm. And I guess the reason it sounds so random right now when you say, oh, they get switched on and they get switched off, but I guess it's the environment, like environmental factors Mm -hmm. and drivers that um, cause that, right? Yeah, yeah. The term that you'd often hear um, in discussion around this is the epigenetics um, or Mm -hmm. epigenetic changes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, epi, I think, means upon or something like that. Um, So epigenome, upon genome. What epigenetics is, it's not the study of the DNA bases, the A's, T's, C's, and G's, but it's the study of different particular uh, molecular structures attaching themselves to the DNA backbone and changing how, you know, DNA is uh, like transcribed and mm-hmm. translated, mm-hmm. how that DNA, you know, ends up uh, becoming functional within the organism. Right. So it's the downstream effects of, you know, the yeah. instructions manual, which yeah. is the DNA. Yeah. You yeah. can maybe think about the yeah, DNA is the instruction manual and... Um, <laughs> Perhaps the um, epigenome would be the sticky notes upon it, telling you to either ignore (laughs) sections, edit sections, or completely skip the entire I like that mental image. That's pretty nice. So, okay, now we talked about the theory behind it all, the genes and how it works, but what did you find Mm -hmm. in your starlings? How did they change or what change did you see over the decades? did you find different species? Uh, (laughs) That would have been cool because I could have named them after someone. Oh, Uh, yeah, after yourself. (laughs) The cat Stuart starling. Apparently, you're not allowed to do that. If you discover a species, you're not allowed to because Harry discovered a new species, which he'll be telling you about in a couple of weeks, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we have him on the show soon. Yeah. And uh, he's getting to choose who to name it after. Uh, That is true. Um, I think it's not so much that you're not allowed to, but it's just frowned upon because it's seen as very like narcissistic yeah. yeah what you need is a friend who also discovers the species exactly and exactly Cat, you know feel free to name a starling <laughs> after me <laughs> i'll allow it <laughs> it would be my honor 
Um, yeah. So what did you what did you actually find? How did the genetics? So you used samples from I only mentioned that briefly in the intro, but you used samples from museum like museum specimens mm -hmm. to look at um, older starlings because obviously, yeah, starlings don't live for 100 years. Um, so you had to go into the basements of museums, I assume. So what did you find? How did the genome of the starlings change over the decades? Yeah, so I had a, a couple of different projects, and one of the ones that I was most excited about um, was this project that used oh, museum glad samples. Me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, starlings were brought over to Australia about 160 years ago, and so oftentimes when we're trying to look at how animals have changed within, an, an, or animals or plants really, any invasive species, when we want to understand how it's changed within the new environment, often what we do is we look at the genetics of the animal within the invasive range, for instance, in this case Australia, and we look to then its native range, in this case England, and compare the genetics of the two. Uh, however, one thing that we need to remember is oftentimes if we find a difference between these two different populations, people will ascribe that difference entirely to change within the invasive range. The assumption is the native range, because they have stayed in the same spot, surely they haven't changed much. Surely if there's a difference between population A and B, Australian and England, that all that changes because in Australia it's changed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is, especially over re recent decades, we've had dramatic environmental change. Uh, we've had change both in you know, anthropogenic areas and even in areas where people are not. Um, there's been so you might, sorry to interrupt, but you might even find um, changes due to climate change change at some exactly, point. Exactly, mm. yeah, yeah. And so if you just compare modern day populations together, you're completely ignoring the the years of evolution that have been happening in the native range. And so mm -hmm. I went to museums uh, over in the UK, or I didn't specifically, I asked someone who was over there in the UK to please sample some uh, That's a bit disappointing, isn't it? It's always a good reason to travel. It was, yeah, but you know, <laughs> student budgets um, <laughs> stretched yeah, thin. She, she had to put in, you know, to sequence the entire genome of her 50 starlings. Yeah, of course. yeah. I was um, car washing for that for a very long <laughs> time uh. <laughs> it's a hard trade-off isn't it and going on a trip to europe or yeah sequencing yeah. starlings yeah. i don't know <laughs> I, I, I can't tell if you're joking or not because um, as somebody who loves sequencing starlings... Uh... <laughs> oh, wow, that was a well, real dilemma for you. <laughs> it was, it really was. Well, to be fair, the UK is not that great. So. No. Okay, sequence starlings. Sorry like to our UK session... listeners. Yeah, I feel like this session has gotten into a bit of a <laughs> heated debate about blaming uh, <laughs> English people for specific things. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I grabbed uh, museum samples and by sequencing the museum samples, uh, I could compare both how the native range and the invasive range have changed over time mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know there were there were cool changes in Australian starlings uh, changes uh, to the genetics of uh, for instance genes that were related to water retention which you might think would be very important in Australia mm -hmm. with uh, a more arid climate compared to the native range and we also saw uh, changes in genes related to immune function so immune function is often considered very important in invasion biology because if an animal or a plant um, comes to a new area it's bombarded by new pathogens and so presumably it's going to have some kind of immune change um, but uh, really uh, importantly, we found that there was actually quite a bit of change within the native range as well. And some of these changes were unique within the native range. We didn't see them in the uh, invasive range at all. But we actually found some changes that happened uh, in parallel. So basically the same, both within the native range and the invasive range independently. How is this possible? Mm. So uh, some of it might be data quirks, um, but some of them are genuine. <laughs> are you saying you made a mistake? N no, I mean... <laughs> no, no, the data did. Oh, oh, I don't make mistakes. <laughs> 
sorry. It's, uh, it's just the, the data that does it. Um, <laughs> you know, some, when you're dealing with genetics, you've got like you know thousands, potentially even millions of uh, elements of you know gen- uh, genetic sites that you're sequencing, mm. and so just randomly you could have something that looks like a pattern that's not um, you know just stochiastic or random um, random patterns. Um, but uh, some of those changes uh, looked like they might be in like related to how organisms cope with um, specific types of pollutants. And if you can imagine, there are probably uh, all number of pollutants and other sorts of things that have been generally on the rise globally. And so the question then arises is, are there some global selection pressures uh, that are basically facing animals across the globe? Uh, and it's these kind of questions that we're only just beginning to crack open because before now, sequencing non-model organisms was too expensive. Mm. But now, now we're being able to afford it. Lots of small lab groups who used to be like priced out of this kind of thing can actually, you know, do these kind of questions and analyze it for their species. And the hope is if enough people be, do these kind of analyses on a whole bunch of different species, both within birds, but across like all different types of animals and plants, we might be able to see really broad, you know, patterns in mm-hmm how organisms essentially are responding to things that we humans are doing across the globe. That's incredible. I mean, that's also really um, good for students who are thinking of maybe pursuing a master's or a PhD. Genetics is wide open, right? Like there's a lot of good questions that you can ask, especially now with with the available equipment. But if you chat from Kat about bioinformatics and what a pain it is first, it's not for everyone, I can (laughs) tell you. That is true. There is a burn-in period. Uh, I won't deny that. (laughs) Some people burn out before they burn in. But, (laughs) But, you know, if um, it can be incredibly satisfying to work through a, um, a bug or an error in your code um, and then get yeah, to never the other side and, yeah, you know, <laughs> and then you've sold it and you feel like accomplished. Nice. Well, that is pretty cool. Well, um, we have to wrap up very soon. Well, now, unfortunately, but Kat, thanks so much for talking about your research and it sounds really cool. I'm very glad you get to continue that in New Zealand now. They have starlings as well, right? Oh, they do. Yes. Okay. Otherwise it would be a bit weird, right? Going I'd have over to there bring to... some over with me and border control would be <laughs> very angry. But they're dead. Yes. Okay, good. Just checking. <laughs> it's like, I need to introduce so I can study them. <laughs> anyway, yeah, thanks so much and all the best for your research in New Zealand. Thank you very much, ladies. And um, yeah, this was Boiling Point um, on Eastside 89.7 FM. And we have a song to finish up with, which um, Kat chose, I assume, Mm -hmm. but Anastasia will... She has all the details. Yeah, um, the song is called Mr. Blue Sky. Um, It seems like a Beatles song, is it not, Kat? Or it seems very close to a Beatles song. Um, But it's by... (laughs) Youngins. But it's by uh, Electric... Light Orchestra. So thank you very much, Kat, for being on the show. You've been listening to Boiling Point.
Why you had to hide away for so long? 